Hey everyone and welcome to the Godcast. Today we are joined by Brother Arnold Hatt, who is a member of the United Society of Believers of Christ's Second Appearing, or more commonly referred to as the Shakers. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Sabbath Day, Maine. So our first question is actually whether or not we should refer to the religion and its believers as Shakers and Shakerism, or something else. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, you know, like, the Religious Society of Friends, people call them Quakers. The United Society of Believers, they call us Shakers. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Shakers, well, Shakerism uh, is fine. Our first question is actually more about you, specifically before we jump into the theological and historical and doctrinal questions of the religion. So what drew you to the community? Uh, well, uh, this is, this, it's an easy question, but not so easy to answer, only because parts of it are only unfolding in the last few months that I even understood. But so I have been here virtually 44 years as a believer. I first came here three years before that. Um, on my first visit here, which was predicated by something else that had happened. So when I was 16 years old, my parent, I'm the oldest of three children, and my parents were very historical-minded. And growing up in New England, it's history everywhere you go. So one year uh, in June, we went to the restoration of at Hancock Shaker Village outside of Pittsfield, Mass., which was very close to my home, actually. And I had always heard about the Shakers because my grandmother in her youth used to go to the Enfield, Connecticut Shakers for chicken dinners. My grandmother loved food. And so almost all conversations dealt with that. And when I was a kid, in the summertime, you used to take these long, tedious rides in the countryside after supper. And if you behaved yourself, you get ice cream at the end. So often we go through Enfield because it was very rural. And she would talk about it. And she'd also talk about Brother Ricardo Belden. And Brother Ricardo um, had had a dispute with the elder of the family, and he left. And as it turned out, he and another brother had a place next door to my grandparents. And my grandmother always thought he was quite handsome. She said that frequently. Um, so anyways, he eventually rejoined the Shakers at Hancock. When I went at 16, we had this tour, and I found out all this stuff about Shakers that I had never heard about before their lifestyle, their theology, all the things they had accomplished. And one of the things they talked about was Brother Ricardo being the last male shaker at Hancock and that he had a lifelong shaker. So I went up to the tour guide and I said, thank you very much. I really learned a lot. You've opened my eyes. I said, there's one thing I know isn't right. Um, my um, Brother Ricardo actually lived out for a number of years and she said I was wrong. Well, I, I have a lot of faults. And one of the greatest of these being, don't tell me I'm wrong when I'm right. And because I was 16, I was just dismissed. It wasn't that I couldn't be telling the truth. If I had been 30 and told her, she probably would have incorporated it into her narrative. So I was incensed. And I went out as we were leaving, and I'm muttering away. Uh, I noticed a big map of the Shaker world. And there were two Shaker communities still extant. One was in New Hampshire, one was in Maine. I had very strong ties to the state of Maine. My mother's family was from here. My father's sister was living here. And we would come up to Maine all the time. So I said, that's where I'm going to write. And I prepared a little card I typed out and it said, Brother Ricardo Belden, born, joined, left, rejoined, died. And the Shakers were going to fill that out. And I was going back to Hancock and find this woman and show her that I was right. And that, more importantly, she was wrong. Well, it didn't happen that way. It unfolded quite differently. I got back about two weeks later, I received a reply and it was a long letter. 
from someone called Brother Theodore E. Johnson, and he's right above me, actually. And he became a shaker because of Ricardo. And um, he, he was the first shaker he ever met. It was Brother Ricardo who said, if you want to be a shaker, you have to go to Maine. And he did. And so right. he was it unfolded. So you couldn't find out anything about the shakers at that time period. I mean, if you want to know 100 years before, you could. But ask about the 20th century shakers. There was nothing available. So I started writing and asking questions, and I was invited to come up thereafter, and I came. And so I came in 1975. I fell in love with the place, with the people, with the whole thing. I did not want to be one. I just wanted to be their friend and help them out. We were in a lot of financial problems at that particular time, and so I did everything I could to help in my little ways. And then eventually it came to a point where um, Brother Ted told me, that I had to be a shaker, that I wouldn't be happy if I wasn't, which I violently disagreed with him two or three times about, until finally it kind of just came to me that that was not the case and I was meant to be here. So I started life here in January of 1978. And I say how it's difficult. It seemed like that was very easy. But I have only more recently discovered that my I have a direct ancestor. I have two direct ancestors who were shakers here in the very beginning of time. So they're buried over in the, the cemetery. It would have been like my eighth grandmother and then her one of her daughters. They remain loyal to death. The other parts of the family all left. And then on my father's side of the family, I found out that actually it goes back three generations that my father's family knew the Enfield, Connecticut Shakers because he was a, a police officer and he helped find stolen horses that were stolen from one of the elders at the, of the church. Well, that is that is so fascinating, and that is is so fascinating because I actually saw Brother Ricardo in the Shaker Wikipedia page. I also learned about the Shakers from watching a lecture about a different uh, religious group that existed in the 19th century, as well as from school. But Brother Ricardo is actually featured in the page, making something, which was an example of communal living, which we should be getting into uh, pretty soon. So, Rylan, uh, would you like to ask the next question? So, you're you are one of two Shakers. Whereas the community used to contain several thousand adherents. Uh, so what would be a quick, purely historical summary of how the believers expanded from Jane Wardley, Mother Ann Lee, and Mother Lucy Wright all the way to today? And like, who, who are those uh, historical yeah, figures the in the community? Yeah. Okay. Well, the Wardleys are, James and Jane Wardley, uh, we're not really sure actually even existed uh, because we can't really find them. But what it was, Shakerism came out of the early Methodist church. So what we have to look at is the fact that what we think of Methodism today is far, far apart from where it was to begin with. It was a very Pentecostal, small house churches. And what happens is after John Wesley is no longer in charge of the church, they start to formalize. And a lot of those uh, people were very dissatisfied and formed very early splinter groups like the Free Wesleyan Society, the Primitive Methodist Church, and the Shakers. So we all come out of that that grouping. We don't really know exactly how that was all operating in England because it was not really preserved. What we do is we look to Mother Ann Lee and we say, so in 1770, she becomes the first real visible leader that we can we can identify. And she, through a series of revelations, feels that they have to move to America. They were highly persecuted in England. And so the inner core of those people all come to America and with her as their lead. 
They come in 1774, which is an inopportune time to be pacifist in English and arrive in America. So they kept a very low profile. Then there was the famous dark day of 1780, and it appeared that the sun did not rise and did not set. And so being good Protestants, as virtually all of New England and New York was, they saw this is from the book of Revelation. This is it. The millennium is about to happen. But what it really was was tens of millions of acres in Canada were burning out of control, and the clouds were so thick that they couldn't see the sun. So on that day, the Shakers went public with their testimony, the Universalists went public, and the Free Will Baptists all come out of that that need and sort of spark up what's called the Second Great Awakening. Well, so people hear about this woman in the wilderness, again, from the book of Revelation, and they start flocking to her. And she gets so many converts that she goes on a missionary tour, where she gets a lot of people, but also she gets way more detractors who start to physically persecute the Shakers. To the point, really, where she dies in 1784. So her public ministry was only four years long. It passed to the young and energetic man known as uh, Father James Whitaker. But he only lives three more years. And so in 1787, the church becomes American. The first real leaders there and the ones that you think about Shakers and Shakerism, building communities and all, that was an American idea. That was Father Joseph Nietzsche, who had been a Baptist minister. And he chose as his co-equal, Mother Lucy Wright. And so right from the beginning, we have this equality of all, including gender. And the sisters governed the sisters, the brothers governed the brethren, and it wasn't supposed to be overreaching into either one. Equal, but separate. And so Father Joseph only lasts in 1796 when he goes, because he feels there's nothing else for him to do, and he kind of just lays down and dies. And Mother Lucy re leads the church from 1796 until around 1821. That's a very long span of time in which she is really the de facto head over everything. And it's that time when the Western societies were gained. Remembering the West then was Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana. And uh, that's when the church literally doubled in size. And that's when we got up to about 5,000 people and the peak of our, our population. After the death of Mother Lucy, there's no real individual leader. It goes into the whole of the ministry, two brothers, two sisters who are running the show. And nobody ever comes up again as being a, a distinctive leader that sort of rules everything. So then you go through expansion and then the inevitable decline. Post-Civil War time period was very difficult. The change into industrialization, the lack of converts that were coming in. They, the strategy was to really be an orphanage, to bring children up in the hopes that they would want to stay and become believers. It didn't really work very well, but it's how they limped along. And so by 1900, the handwriting was on the wall. Already we had lost several communities, but in rapid succession during the first uh, two decades of the 20th century, it collapsed. And so we're left with only the northern communities, and you're left only with a very few of them, Saturday Lake being the strongest of them at that time, and continued to remain pretty strong right through World War II. And then after World War II, things started to rapidly change. And the young people were not staying at all. We kept adopting children until the 1960s. But since that time period, it's only been adults who have um, come into the church. Thank you so much. Balin, would you like to ask the next question, which is also a history-related question as well? 
Shakerism is known for its ecstatic uh, dancing and its divine revelations, specifically in the mid-19th century in which tons of songs were written, and lots of Shaker art and culture was developed. So maybe you could tell us about the Shaker rituals. That word has a negative connotation, but it is actually a neutral academic word to describe anything that any things like sacraments, ordinances, religious dancing, etc. Unique to the religion as well as how baptisms, communion, and other sacraments are performed both today and in the past. So. Well, uh, shakers, <laughs> shakers don't have a creed, number one. We've always shied away from that. Uh, but there are certain understandings we have, indeed. And the life of a believer is to live the life of Christ. So we're not in the world. Uh, we live separately from the world. We practice not only the equality of all, but it's that we feel, so we own nothing as individuals. We give up anything we have for the community, live as Jesus did with his apostles. We're celibate in, in honor of the Christ and being married to the church. And also the confession of sin, uh, which is done differently than the Catholic church. It's not a penance or anything. It's just you have to actively seek out the elder of the family uh, and you open your mind, as it were. And there's just, it's the act of humility and contrition of having to admit where you were wrong and where you failed. So those are the things that, that kind of bind us together. Uh, we do not practice any sacraments. Uh, we're definitely anti-sacramental church. But we believe that for instance, when we come together communally to eat our meals three times a day, that there is a possibility of the Eucharist because in the commonness of our lives and the com common elements that we have produced, we are, we are uh, presenting there that possible feast. And that's why until really the 1960s, we didn't talk at table. It was, it was completely silent. And that just evolved because circumstances changed and Shakerism has to evolve and change with it. So we started having the world with eating with us because we couldn't, we didn't have enough people to cook for them separately. And so they would eat with us. And then we thought, well, people were not very happy not to be able to talk. So we started allowing conversation, probably 1963, 64. And so then since then, that's how it's, that's evolved. The marches and dances were discontinued in most of the communities by 1900. So this is the, the state of evolution. It was Pentecostal, and Mother Anne's Day, totally Pentecostal. And nobody did anything the same. Some people whirled and twirled and rolled. Some people sat and had uh, wordless songs. It was, it was bedlam, basically. Well, Father Joseph was a Baptist. And um, I know you guys are Catholic, and you don't really get this part, but Baptists are all about law and order. Everything's square order. And Father couldn't stand it. So he had a, conveniently had a, a revelation from God in which he saw the angels above the heads doing a march. And they were all doing the same thing at the same time. And so that's where the marching gets introduced, the square word shuffle it was called. We don't use musical instruments, but there's always been singing. So that's how you keep the beat up. And then from the time of Mother Lucy, who was very lively, they, they evolved many, many different kinds of, of dances. Um, the, square, uh, the square order gave way to ring dances and all these other kinds of things. 
By the 1840s, we had gone to something more stately. That is to say, it was slower. Those were called marches. And finally, in the 1890s, you see the aging of the community when they introduced something called a walking march. So you see, it just kind of played itself out and down. And because union is so important to believers, when we started having more people not entertaining in the march than were because of age or whatever, it was thought best to stop it. So we have what's called sitting meeting, and that's been going on here for 130 years, just about now. And so it's individual testimonies. We sit in the benches. People rise when they offer testimony. In between, you have singing, which is all done a cappella, and it's really pitched up to be like an amen to what somebody said. We have like 10,000 songs. We know probably a 1,000 or so of them ourselves by heart. So there's a large repertoire to be able to, to draw from. Wow. And, and I think that also you might be able to see that as the marching gets less intense, uh, could that could you see that as a result of the believers of the community getting up there in age? Yeah, and a lot of, a lot of steps. Yeah, absolutely it was. A question that I had would be, we are talking about this, you know, fascinating culture of arts and music and then the fact that um, there are, you know, about 10,000 songs, like perhaps you could tell us how this culture all developed. Because I know that there are, you know, shaker paintings. There was a painting of the Tree of Life and all these songs. So how did those come to develop over time? Uh, the shaker believes everything we are and everything we have is a gift from God. And so in terminology, shaker terminology, you will hear the word gift. So the songs were not written. They were received as a gift from the Spirit. If somebody in that, they were prompted. The gift drawings you're talking about uh, were also, they were a vision that were revealed there are very, very small number of those, though. It was only done at Hancock and Mount Lebanon. Those were the only two places where those were, were created. Mostly, the, this was an intense time in the 1840s called the Era of Manifestations or Mother's Work. And it was spurred on because of the Adventists, who had had the great disappointment with the world in end. And a lot of them sought solace in Shaker communities as being the next best thing for them. And they were really wild and woolly people. And so they spurred on this whole revival, and it brought about thousands of songs uh, that were generated in just a few years. It brought in new marches, and it brought out uh, visions and a lot of uh, revelations So uh, until it actually got out of control. And the, the leaders finally picked up on the fact that the, this was not probably uh, a good thing for the church and started to, to squash it. So uh, those things came out of that. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. I suppose you mostly people now today think of us as furniture designers, which was in not not necessarily done intentionally, but rather just because the first generation of believers wanted to strip away all the superfluities of the world. So it was to make something much more plain. And uh, we were derided actually at the time for the plainness of our furniture, but. Eventually, in the 20th century, it becomes that spare design that everybody wants. And we influence the Danish modern, uh, as a matter of fact, at the design because several pieces were sent over there. And they, we know that they were actually used as an influence towards how they were trying to simplify their furniture. Um, so celibacy and uh, pacifism are two well-known requirements for the religion. Uh, how did these tenets come to be in Shakerism, and why are they so valued uh, in the ethics system of Shakerism? Because we see it as a bedrock of the life of Christ. And so 
since we're trying to live that life. And in fact, we call it the Christ life. And they, those are the two, two most fundamental things for us. Yes, and there is actually a, a very interesting uh, passage in, in the book of Acts about communalism, and, and naturally you're also going to assume that the apostles lived the way you described. And, and then a question that I had is, is, so the Shakers were you know, actively involved in abolitionism and, and, and being abolitionists, so why do you think that Shakers were so drawn to this movement, whereas other people uh, at that time were not? Well, because at our fundamental core, we believe that enslavement is, is wrong. We believe that God's created everybody equally, and therefore everyone is a son or a daughter of God, and therefore it has to have that respect. And that's also why we believe to the, when we say the equality, so strangely, we weren't getting in trouble in the 1790s for having people of color perhaps mixed in with, with people who aren't, uh, but more so it's that we allowed women a full voice, and they thought that was way too radical. So... The abolitionist movement, Shakers tried to stay away from issues of the world, but we felt that that was so overarching into our lives. And there are several of the communities that were part of the Underground Railroad, like Union Village, Ohio, and Enfield, Connecticut, um, that they were offering hospitality, that they were openly trying to do something to make the world better because they felt that it was necessary. Well, we couldn't get too involved. And the Kentucky community suffered terribly because the Civil War raged around them. And, of course, because of they were considered to be Yankees in that sense that they were too northern in their, their beliefs. So it was, it was a trying time. Many figures who were advocates of women's rights were, you know, also abolitionists. Uh, you know, uh, uh, they're involved, they're advocates in the abolition of slavery. So, um I think you can make that comparison, you know, between, you know, the egalitarianism and, and, and women's rights and the abolition of slavery. I mean, you can make that comparison in the Shaker movement with egalitarianism uh, from, you know, between women and men in, in Shakerism. And you could see, you know, they're going to apply that worldview to the abolition of slavery. So, uh, Balin, would you like to ask the next question? How was the community structured from its inception and... How is the community structured today? Well, let's see. I mean, at its inception, it was a house church. So uh, people had their individual homes, families, and businesses. When the ingathering started in 1787, that's when the communalism was added to everything else. So that was the giving up a ball into the one pot. And then we were structured in what are called families recognizing that we're a family in Christ. That's why we call each other brother and sister, to remind ourselves of that relationship. So in that case, you have a family, and they would be in a dwelling house, such as I am sitting in now, and all of the buildings around them that survive for their, their um, support. So you have workshops, barns, mills, whatever it might be that you were going to keep going. And you had men and women living here, your children in their orders, and all were brought up in order. So there was things that you do and didn't do, like this house is divided in half. And the brothers stay on this side, and then we have a staircase that go up to the attic. The sisters have likewise stairs. And any room that's in common, like the music room that I'm in, it's in the center of the house. And behind me is the meeting room. Below us is the dining room and the kitchen. And above us is the family library. So um, it's a 48-room house, six stories tall, 
It was built in 1883, took the place of our first house, which was pretty dilapidated. And so from the time it's been constructed to today, this is the largest and tallest building in the town of New Gloucester. So it's kind of a landmark. But so that's the order of the family. Uh, there would be several families that made up a community. We had the Square House family about half a mile north of us. And then we had the Gathering Order or Poland Hill. And they were a mile away from us. What is so interesting is that the, the, the parallel that I find is that early Christianity and early Christianity is that you know, when the people were, were working with Paul, you know, Paul was establishing his churches and people would meet in the house of the most eth- economically sufficient church member of that church community. And the letter um, of Paul to that community would be read aloud by a literate member of, you know, that community, if maybe not even the literate member, if there was if there was um, only only one of the church community. So furthermore, in the time of Paul, a hierarchy did not actually exist in the church, so everything was more or less incredibly egalitarian. Uh, so I thought that would be, you know, an interesting comparison between the house meetings you mentioned and the house churches that uh, existed in the church under Paul. Mm-hmm. It's very much that way. And that does see if Mother Anne had survived, it would have probably stayed in that form because that's the form she preferred. Father James started seeing a necessity of something different. And so he started commissioning meeting houses to be constructed. And so that was a place of worship where people could come together as well as the world could attend and see what was going on. And then Father Joseph just said, you know, we're getting persecuted. People were having houses burned down. They were being abused. And he thought for the safety of the people that it was necessary for them to to leave the world and come into this place, an enclave where they would be safer. So now on to some, you know, theological questions. Uh, this is a this is an interesting question because we were actually interviewing a rabbi in September and he pointed out that at times in the Hebrew scriptures, God is sometimes depicted in female terms. So is God male and female? And if so, what scripture could he use as justification? Genesis. God, God made male and female, therefore, therefore they made them. Um, and it's only just implied, I suppose. But it just seems to us, Shakerism is very logical. Because we believe God is all logic. If you take a look at how the world has been laid out, it's all made male and female. And if the female component wasn't in the Godhead, it doesn't make much sense that it would be in anything else. So we do look upon God as being all spirit. There's no corporalness to it, but it's all spirit. Within it, there is a maleness and a femaleness. And that's reflected in the creation. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. I was thinking, you know, as an, as an example, flowers being pollinated, that requires male and female parts of the flower. Everything. Exactly. Yes, it, it is like the it's like the dualism of everything, male and female. Uh, so another question would be that when I was reading the website, it said that Mother Anne Lee never claimed to be the second coming of Jesus. That is a claim that I frequently hear that she claimed to be the second coming of Jesus. So did Mother Anne Lee claim to be the second coming of Jesus, or is or is this? Um, and if so, how did she convince people? And she did not. She calls Jesus her, her master and Lord. He's with her in her down sitting or up getting wherever she might be. Um, but she did not claim to be the second appearance of Christ. She stated quite, quite earnestly, the second appearance of Christ is in his church. That is to say, among the witnessing believers, that the Christ spirit is there within them, within the corporate body, not within an individual. We believe, I mean, and certainly I, I do have to say I'm, that the first generation of believers there were people who actually believed that she was the second coming of Christ. There's no doubt about it. That's how they felt. Her, the 21st century, we can't really understand what charisma is all about. 
because we have too many ways artificially to create it. But there was incredible charisma in this woman. Somehow she could read souls and she drew people to her uh, in a way that um, I don't know we could do today. Anyway, so she had that ability. And so, of course, they thought she was. But that's she absolutely proclaimed something very different. And so we see her as our sainted founder. Indeed, someone who was Christed, not the Christ. But that's what we're, she call, as Jesus calls us all to be Christed. So she was also in her turn saying the same thing to us as she did to the believers of her time. So we venerate her as our sainted mother, the founder of our church, but we don't claim her to be Christ. Awesome that you cleared up that misconception because that is a, a frequent misconception that I hear. So it's great that you shed light on it. So you, you can ask the question now, Raylan, and then Balin can ask the next question. Uh, given that believers cannot have children, how did the community grow? Well, the way it did the first time, conversion. Uh, and then, as I've already said, there was a lot of adoption. Beginning in the 1820s and 30s, they started to adopt children when they were getting lesser uh, family units joining. So that's the way I, – I didn't say this. So initially how they grew was because you would have a family that would convert, father, mother, and all the kids. And for Sabbath Day Lake, for instance, you had anywhere between five and ten children. And most of those kids, because of the way they had been brought up by their parents beforehand, tended to stay. And as adults, when they, you're not a shaker until you're an adult, and you can make that decision for yourself. And they stayed, but then there weren't any more coming in, or there were very few people who were joining. So they saw as a way of perpetuating the church, bringing kids, bring them up in the way of God. They want to stay in the way of God. Well, they didn't. You know, nine out of ten did not. So um, they still had to rely on going out, but they had lost their zeal for missionizing work was the problem. So it was just how people would find them. They did a lot of publishing. We sold our goods all over the place. So there's nobody who didn't know who the Shakers were at that particular time. And so they could draw some people in from that way, too. So in the Millerite movement, it was, you know, the, it was like the kingdom of God will return. It will return on, on October 21st. 1844, whereas in the Shanker movement, the kingdom is a slow dawning. So maybe you could tell us exactly how that process works and once the and, and what will happen once the kingdom dawns. Well, uh, it's here. I mean, really, in a sense, Shakers believe in 1747 in a very quiet way when the Shakers were established that there was the dawn of the millennium, that, that indeed the kingdom of God is among us now. And how it spreads is that as the word itself gets spread out, as people are more ready to accept it and live it, it becomes more visible. But we're not looking for a cataclysmic end to the world. We don't see that happening at all. Uh, we think that Christ comes as a thief in the night. It's very quiet, and it comes upon as an individual. And as that individual gets convicted, then, then that conviction grows, not only within, within them as individuals, but then more collectively. So my understanding of the millennium is that this is supposedly a you know thousand year reign of Christ on Earth, and then afterwards there is another event that ushers in another chapter of history. So, so final judgment. So will the final judgment occur one thousand years from seventeen forty seven? Would, would, would that be the the thinking? I guess if you take it literally, um, but I, I don't really take it that way. I, I think it's just as it dawns, it dawns. Um, just as the millennium is something that is slowly being ushered in. It, it's uh, it's something that has to happen to individuals. It's a conviction. 
I definitely like the figurative aspect. It is in many ways your responsibility to bring about the kingdom instead of by divine intervention uh, doing it for you. Right. So mother, mother said, um, do all your work as though you had a thousand years to live and yet as if you knew you were going to die tomorrow. So that is to say, in that expression, she's saying, she's using the millennium, obviously. But she, so she's saying, let it last forever. But make sure that you're doing it right and you're doing it now in time. So that if you are called unexpectedly, you don't have to worry about it. You've done your work. So that means every single day counts. And it is your responsibility in that context. Fascinating. And, and something else that I found interesting is that according to a Shaker publication, it said that men and women would not shake hands or pass each other when walking up or down stairs. So is that true or misquoted? That was, that was from the Rules and Orders. That was very true. Uh, but that's from the 1845 Rules and Orders. And life has sort of changed since that time period. There's also a huge section in there about fire safety. Well, we don't have wood stoves in our rooms anymore. So uh, those have all been struck down. And again, it's adaptation and change. So when I came here to live, I made the seventh shape. And by that point, we all realized that if we continued on in this completely separate world, we'd be in a lot of trouble. We had to cooperate much more between brothers and sisters. Also, we didn't have teenagers anymore. A lot of that was because they didn't want the kids, the teenagers, sparking lustful thoughts, you know, and then running away with each other. So that's why that was done so astutely and insidiously. But for us today, it's an understanding of who we are and what we are. And I mean, well, anyways, it's just Sister June and I at this moment. We were three until August. We had a brother here who was with us for two and a half years and decided not to, to stay. But regardless, we're, we're adults and we understand. And, of course, we converse and we have to help each other. She's 83 and she needs some help. So I give her that help as she needs it. My last question for, you know, theological questions as of right now is, you know, so non-Trinitarianism is, is very fascinating because a majority of denominations are Trinitarian. So tell us how this plays into the understanding of who Jesus the man was and who Mother Anne Lee was in relation to their divinity and God and who is the Holy Spirit. You know, I find non-Trinitarian theology super fascinating. And so we've already had, we believe God is one. So you could put us in the Unitarian camp on that. Jesus was a man, Christ is a spirit. So we believe that he became the Christ at his baptism. A second example of that was when he's transfigured on Mount Tabor. So those are both Christing experiences where the fullness of God was, was poured into him. And for Shakers, we believe there's no one has been Christed to that point as he has been since that time. But I mean, it can still happen. But it's how, how much are you willing to sacrifice to make that available to you? And so Mother, yea, she had Christ within her. She did not have a Christing experience in that sense. She did have a revelation when she was locked up in jail in Manchester, England. And when she comes forth, that's when they give her the title, Our Mother in the New Creation, because she had been indeed inspired by God and started to understand things in a way she could never understand before. And they felt that the the candle of the Lord, that's what they use for a quote, uh, rested upon her. So she went forth with an ability and an understanding of who she was, but that was bolstered up by the people around her, too. And it's very hard not to have, if you don't have at least one disciple, you're not going to get your message through. So that's that's how all that went. But, so we, we believe um, that Christ indeed was a human, 
godlike at the same time, but the spirit of God moved within him. So, so it is almost like um, it is almost like adoptionism, but it's it's different. It is. Yeah, you're right. It's it's a form of adoptionism, indeed. It is different because you know Christ is the Spirit who enters Jesus, the man, instead of Jesus being a man who God purely adopts, and there is no extra divine substance. You know, reading the Gospel of John, a lot of people would see that there that it is apparent that Jesus is equated with God. So you know, you know. So, so tell me if this is how you know Shakers would interpret the, the passage at the beginning of John. You know, so so my understanding is that Shakers would probably interpret like, okay, so God created the Word before the Earth was created, but the Earth, but that means, but you know, but God, this is before time, this is before creation came into being, but the Word is not coeternal with the Father, with, with God, and the 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 Word is the Spirit of Christ, and the and the Word, um, you know enters Jesus the man. Yeah. I think I think that's a very good way of putting it, Steve. Very good. So first closing question is, uh, where do you see the Shaker community in the next decade and then the next 50 years? So looking to the future. Well, I don't have a crystal ball. Don't I wish I did. But uh, I firmly believe that Shakerism is going to endure. And why do I believe that? Well, first of all, I have that faith, number one. But number two is I really firmly believe that whenever if, – if we continue to do the work of God, if we continue to live up to our calling, God is always going to send us vocations. And that's been the case. Since I've lived here for nearly 44 years, 30 people have come and tried the life. Sister June is the only one who stayed uh, from that time period. But some have stayed a year, two years. Some have stayed 10 years. Um, but they've all contributed to the life and help carry it forward. And I believe that that's what's going to keep happening. But there will be people who will come to the church. And, you know, we use, we talked about spreading the faith in one sense or another. And that's why we have a website. That's why we grant interviews. That's why we do everything we do to make people aware. That's all we can do. Um, people say about going out and missionizing. And I say, well, you know, it's easy enough if you have a normal, unquote, normal church. You can go in the neighborhood and say, hey, we've got a new, new thing going on over here. Why don't you come over, come to church, come to coffee hour. Uh, we knock on the door and say, hey, why don't you go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, come take up your cross and follow me. Yeah, right. Slam. Um, that's not going to happen. That has to be the inner prompting. And so uh, what we have to do is to be a visible force that this is something here. And if it's something that seems to attract you, well, then contact us and let's go through a process. We have a young woman right now who's gone, who's going through the process, who looks very, very plausible. Uh, to come in and, and to start an novitiate within a, within a year or so. So I, I have a lot of hope. So where's it going to be in 20 years? God willing, it's going to still be here. Where's it going to be in another 50 years? God willing, it's still going to be here. And again, it's just the faithfulness of the individuals and the calling of those people and how they're going to hear it and how they're going to adapt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really appreciate the dedication of the faith because when Jesus would be asked, you know, someone would say, hey, what do I need to do to be your follower, to be your disciple? I believe was the term used. He would say, give up everything and pick up your cross and follow me. To me, it seems like that, what that, like that is what the shakers are doing. Like they're, you know, fully answering the call of Jesus. So, so basically in, in our, in our, on our uh, podcast, we'll ask, Every guest, what does it mean to be the religion that you're a part of? So we, we, we had an evangelical Christian, and we asked him, what does it mean to be an evangelical Christian? We had a rabbi. We asked him, what is he a Jew? We had a, an Ahmadi Muslim. We asked him, what does it mean to be an Ahmadi Muslim? We had a, um, 
we had um, a Baha'i, and by the, the Baha'is, and by the way, that episode should be coming out within the next few weeks because we were unable to record it. But we asked the Baha'is, what does it mean to be, you know, Baha'is? We asked, you know, um, we asked a Buddhist, what does it mean to be a Buddhist? So, you know, we are asking you for the final question for you, what does it mean to be a shaker? Well, it's, it's everything, isn't it? I mean, it really is taking up the call of Christ and it is reminding yourself on a daily basis of the need of your baptism into that newness. And so it's, it really is, it's a journey and it's a perpetual journey. Uh, Mother Lucy, who you referenced early on, said, I, I shall be laboring forever. And she said, I do not think that when I pass to the next world, I'm going to stop laboring. It's going to be forever. And so laboring for a gift of God is what we're called to do. And that's where I am. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. This has been, ep- thank you for time. Thank you for everything. Thank you for joining us all the way from, you know, Sabbath day, Maine. So this has been episode 16 of the Godcast, Shakerism, and stay tuned. I am Xavier. I'm Rylan. I'm Bailey. And I'm Brother Arnold. And stay tuned. Actually, the episode is not over, and here's why. So after Rylan, Balin, and I interviewed Brother Arnold Had, he actually sent me an email in which he expounded upon how exactly Shakers live their, their, their day-to-day life. What, what does a schedule look like? What does a daily schedule look like in the life of a Shaker? So uh, Brother Arnold Had writes that, they, that, quote, We have a very monastic type of life that is work and worship, or as our founder, Mother Ann Lee stated, quote, hands to work and hearts to God, end quote. Uh, we find that labor is worship and worship is labor. Labor. We rise as needed, we say our first prayers in our rooms, we have breakfast at 7.30, followed by communal prayers, we read two psalms responsively, then we have two Bible readings and oral prayer for those who are ill and have asked for our prayers, other religious communities, and those friends who pray for us each day, silent prayer, and we finish with a shaker song. We go to, to, to work, uh, be it kitchen work, barn chores, we have 70 sheep and four heads of cattle presently, office work, running errands, cleaning, in-season gardening, and general outside work. We gather at 11.30 for prayer again, and then we have dinner, our, ma- uh, our main meal of the day, at noon. We, have jo- we are joined by staff, visitors, and guests, then it is back to work. On Wednesday, we have meeting at 5 p.m., and we have supper at 5.30. The evenings are generally free to do as you need, work or recreation. We have a sitting room where we have a television, we have two daily newspapers and many journals. Sundays are different in that we do no unnecessary work. We have public meeting, the one service of the week open to the quote-unquote world, at 10 a.m. Before the pandemic, we had 20 to 30 people attending on a regular basis, but only a few are invited to attend these days. End quote. So that was, you know, extra extra information about the Shakers, uh, straight from uh, Brother Arnold had. Uh, That being said, uh, stay tuned for planned future episodes.